What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. There's never been a better time to be a high-profile insider as the public's consumption habits have created a very lucrative market. Adrian Wojnarowski, fresh off signing a significant extension at ESPN, continues to hone his craft and isn't about to loosen his vice grip on new and intriguing information. Still, when he drops in from the sky with major breaking news, it always seems unexpected and impactful. Hence the term Wojbomb which isn't my favorite, but applies in this case, to his report, Denver Nuggets center Nikola Jokic has won his second consecutive NBA MVP award. Woj broke the news at 8.38 in the morning via tweet. A formal announcement is expected sometime this week. And what a way to begin a Monday morning before most people even get to work. Just in time for get up to rip up the rundown and debate this for the next 80 minutes just in time for people in Colorado to wake up to a notification and celebrate, and for people in Philadelphia to cry foul over Joel Embiid's snub. Shams Charania, reporting Jokic's win last year, did it at 5.31 p.m. It's a way different vibe. That's late afternoon, early evening Twitter. People are thinking about dinner or how much they hate their commute. If you thought the debate over who should win this trophy was hot now, think of how raging it will be with several more days at the center of the frame. Imagine how strong the takes will be if Embiid leads the Sixers roaring back over the heat. All of this is instructive to how efficient the NBA is in creating a product and then creating conversation around the product. Seems like everything fits into a perfect little ecosystem that only drives engagement. And so many times it all starts with the insider and their latest report. This is how the sausage gets made. And the good news for now is that there's plenty enough to go around to keep everybody fat and juicy on delicious content. There is nothing like the smell of a Woj bomb in the morning. Andrew Marchand of the New York Post reports that WFAN's Craig Carton is expected to host a national morning TV show on Fox Sports 1 beginning this fall. Let's get in the Wayback Machine and read something I wrote on September 20th, 2020. Freshly relevant today. WFAN is expected to offer a lucrative olive branch to formerly disgraced radio host Craig Carton by week's end, according to Andrew Marchand of the New York Post. It would be a fast track return for Carton, who served a year in federal prison after being convicted of felony fraud, the victims of which were largely the everyday sports fans who would presumably be welcoming him back with their dials and downloads. But that's not all. Carton is apparently also weighing an offer to do mornings in Philadelphia. 
decisions, decisions. It must be nice to have options. Here's the big, bold disclaimer. Carton was punished for his misdeeds and has paid his debt to society. He should be afforded opportunities despite his missteps. Throwing people away and writing them off is not an enlightened way to live. Yet, who can look at these offers, one in the biggest market in the country and one in the fourth, and believe that the industry is in a healthy and equitable place? How does one not understand the frustrations of women and voices of color who have struggled to be considered for such high-profile roles when the unbalanced playing field is laid bare? How can these stations look anyone in the eyes with a straight face and suggest that this isn't a desperate stunt trying to capitalize on controversy? It's simultaneously a bit maddening and wholly expected. Actually, what would be truly expected is for a third offer to materialize, driving up the price for the other two. So Carton actually returns to a more lucrative salary than he forfeited with legal proceedings previously. So why not? A third party needs to step up and throw its hat in the ring. Maybe a fourth while we're at it. I could be wrong. It could be that there is no existing talent out there who could fill these positions and create equal ratings without the controversy. Or maybe the buzz of past scandal is a draw here. Not to be cynical or anything. It certainly feels like Major League Baseball's umpires have been getting worse over the last few years. The work that's being done behind home plate has largely been atrocious for a while, and that's why we're rapidly headed towards a world where robots are calling balls and strikes. And that'll suck. It doesn't get much better in the field where a robust replay system had to be implemented to deal with the astonishing numbers of blown calls. Even with Joe West retired, there are still too many bad umpires to count. We're going to try to do that anyway. Number 10, Hunter Wendelstadt. Not only is Wendelstadt known for being bad behind the plate, he's also quick with the hook when he gets called out. Few people on the planet have thinner skin. Wendelstadt was the seventh worst home umpire in 2021, calling 92.2% of calls correctly. Just this week, he missed 16 calls in a game between the Royals and Cardinals. This has been his pattern for years. It's kind of his thing. Wendelstad is the classic ump who rips his mask off to get in the face of anyone who questions him. He's the perfect example of what's wrong with umpiring. Number nine, Ed Hitchcock. Ladies and gentlemen, meet the most inaccurate umpire in all of baseball. In 2021, Hitchcock had an accuracy rate of only 91.3 in 18 games behind home plate. He's followed that up with a rate of 92.3 in four games this year. He's averaging 11.5 missed calls per game and is in the 20th percentile in accuracy. That's really bad. He also blew one of the biggest calls of the 2021 season by missing a clear swing on a check swing appeal and was overturned three times in the same game once last season. He's terrible and is a huge reason robot umpires are on the horizon. Number eight, Greg Gibson. Greg Gibson became an MLB umpire in 1997 and has worked some really big games. That doesn't mean that he's good at his job. In six games behind the plate this season, Gibson is rocking an accuracy rate of 91.1 and averaging 12.8 missed calls per game. That includes 19 missed calls on April 11th. In 2021, Gibson was barely better. In his 30 games calling balls and strikes, his accuracy rate was a woeful 92.1, six worse than baseball. He's not much better in the field, blowing calls regularly and getting indignant when anyone argues. Number seven, Rob Drake. Rob Drake is, quite simply, a terrible umpire. 
He also has the distinction of having called what we think might be the worst game we've ever seen. Back on September 27, 2020, Drake missed an insane 27 calls in what turned out to be a one-run game between the Giants and Padres. It's hard to think some of those calls didn't impact the game. He also likely had the worst call of the 2019 season as well. According to Ump Scorecards, Drake ranks in the 18th percentile for accuracy and 24th for consistency. In 2021, he was the ninth worst home umpire behind home plate, getting only 92.2% of his calls correctly, which was tied with Joe West. On April 24th this year, Drake missed 18 calls in a game between the Diamondbacks and Mets and has only missed fewer than 10 calls in one of his five games behind home plate this year. He missed nine on April 18th. He started his 2022 campaign in midseason form. Number six, Laz Diaz. Laz Diaz is yet another terrible umpire behind the plate, and frankly, we debated putting him higher on this list. In 2021, he was the third worst MLB umpire at cutting balls and strikes with a dismal accuracy rating of 91.9. Again, that's stunningly bad. In a game between the Mets and Braves earlier this year, he missed a whopping 17 calls behind home plate. The fact that he and Brian Onora are on the same crew is actually hilarious. Diaz made his debut in 1995 and has simply never gotten better. He's flat out bad and was somehow promoted to a crew chief for this season. Number five, Ron Culpa. Like Doug Eddings, Culpa is one of the least accurate umpires in baseball behind the plate. 2021, it was the fourth worst at calling balls and strikes with a miserable accuracy rate of 92%. In his worst game of 2021, he missed a whopping 15.2% of the ball strike calls, getting only 84.8% correct. That's not getting it done. Like many of the other guys on this list, he loves a quick ejection when anyone points out his egregiously bad calls. Back in 2019, he got into it with A.J. Hinch, who asked the ump to stop staring into the Astros dugout. Copa got in Hinch's face and screamed, I can do anything I want, in a truly embarrassing incident. He even tried to pick a fight with Manny Machado a few weeks ago and seemed disappointed Machado didn't engage with him after a strikeout. Number four, Brian Onora. We had an Onora incident earlier this week as he called strikes on three straight pitches that were nowhere near the plate, leaving Marcel Azuna apoplectic. That was nothing new for Onora, who was the second worst home plate umpire in terms of accuracy in 2021. He was accurate on only 91.8% of his calls behind the dish, which is flat out bad. Number three, Doug Eddings. Eddings is yet another veteran umpire with a massive and ever-shifting strike zone. His home plate accuracy was actually worse than the guy atop this list when he was one of the 15 worst in all of baseball. Eddings routinely has no idea where the strike zone actually is and blows huge calls with regularity. He's also quick to toss anyone who points out that he's terrible at his job. Number two, C.B. Buckner. MLB players have named Buckner the worst umpire in baseball on three separate occasions, and it's not hard to understand why. He's known to have an enormous strike zone that drives hitters crazy. While you think pitchers would love that, and many probably do, Buckner is also wildly inconsistent. If his missed calls weren't enough, his over-the-top strikeout motion drives hitters insane. And number one, to no surprise, is Angel Hernandez. There's no other answer here. No umpire in baseball is as bad at his job as Hernandez. Everyone knows it, even MLB. Not only is he bad, he's defiantly bad and courts controversy almost every time he's behind the plate. Aside from repeatedly botching big calls on the field, Hernandez's work behind the dish is consistently atrocious. Kyle Schwarber's recent blow up on the veteran umpire is just the latest in a long line of controversies he's been involved in. The game would be better without Hernandez, but somehow 
he still has a job. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show, presented by The Big Lead. A programming note, the International Baseball League of West Michigan wrap-up show will be tomorrow. I will tease it by saying that the Cubs responded in week two with a Laffer victory, 20-1 to over the Royals. They are an expansion team. They had expansion problems. Your boy, three innings on the hill, six strikeouts. Stuff was working, lowers the ERA to one even, gets the first win of the year. I will have multiple guests on for that. But first, we're talking to Stephen Douglas of thebiglead.com, not of the International Baseball League of West Michigan, about what's going on in the NBA playoffs. A lot went down this weekend. I think that the most blog-worthy story happened in Dallas, where Chris Paul, in the throes of just a nightmarish game, as the Suns fall to two and two in the series against the Mavs points to the crowd, gets very upset tweets that someone put their hands on his family video emerges of him yelling at the offending party. And there's no other way to say it. This is like a 17 or 18 year old kid who looks very young. Maybe he has a punchable face. If you're okay with assaulting minors, uh, you know, your mileage will vary on that one. A very weird incident by the way that it's being termed. And I think that we thought one thing based on what Paul tweeted. And then when we see the video of this relatively young kid who we're not absolving of any responsibility here, if he did something he shouldn't have done, obviously that's a problem, but he gets kicked out. His mom tries to get him to leave the area to not make things worse, forgets her purse. And then you got little Johnny, little brother, coming through the row with his mom's purse that she left, dutifully walking up the stands. He has just seen some shit that he's going to remember forever. Stephen, what do you make of this incident, which on one hand seems kind of serious and seems bad and seems kind of like the next data point in an era where fans have become way more emboldened toward players and players' families, and on the other seems like kind of an idiot kid acting like an idiot kid? Well, yeah, it's very, very crazy. Um, it seems like just the latest fan incident. We didn't have as many this year as we did like at last year's playoffs. There were a ton, and we just kind of chalked it up to uh, people getting out in public again for the first time. So when you hear this one, it's like somebody put their hands on Chris Paul's mother, who's like, I mean, she must be 60. And Chris Paul's wife, who, who is another, you know, adult woman, the idea that it's it's insane to think that anyone would put their hands on those people at anywhere, uh, that there would be some sort of physical confrontation with like a grandmother at an NBA game. But also, it's not the wildest thing we've ever heard of. I mean, we've had people, we had people run out of the court, glue themselves and chain themselves to basketball apparatuses recently so you hear it and you're like oh you know that's that's really messed up that's horrible you know chris and chris paul's right they shouldn't have to put up with that and then you see the video and it's this teenager and you're like that just makes even less sense it's not like you would expect it to be like some drunk middle-aged guy who's just been giving it to the bench the entire night and it's 
it just turns out to be this teen and the mother the look on her face is like let's just get out of here we don't and the kid looks confused the little there's a little brother involved i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised whatever turns out to be true in this case but then just the image of chris paul shouting at a teenager um like he wants to fight him in the parking lot if the Suns don't win the title, then this is all anyone is ever going to remember about Chris Paul. Yeah, I kind of agree because you read what happened and for there to be contact with not one, but two members of Chris Paul's family is super weird. Like, was there a shoving spree going on? It's, I guess I'm sitting here this morning and I just kind of need more information because like you said, I don't really know what to make of this. This is a very bizarre one. You know, I, I want to be careful and not like bending over backwards to defend the kid, but he didn't seem out of control. Like he seemed pretty calm. He seemed fairly docile. He didn't seem like someone like I'm sure he wasn't drinking. So it's just odd that it would elevate to this level. And then when you see the shot of how angry Paul was and basically challenging this person to a fight by repeatedly saying, I'll see you later. I'll see you later. And then panning <laughs> out. And then having someone look like baby era Justin Bieber, it's just way too hard to compute. But I do think that even if even if Paul was right in his anger and you understand why that would happen, because nobody wants that to happen, especially on Mother's Day. Yeah, that's a tough image to live down. I think it's it's just a really rough look for him, even if he's in the right, because you don't really get a lot of places by yelling at, at people who are much younger than you. And I know this is not an app comparison and it's not the same thing, but when I watched the video, it kind of felt like that Covington Catholic video from the Capitol a few years ago, where it was just like a secondary angle kind of changes how you think about the whole perspective. And you're just so confused about what led up to the moment where this is happening. You don't really want to take sides without knowing what went down, but it's just really weird. And I guess the more interesting story is if it becomes kind of a wedge in the never ending culture war uh, with right wing sites, like defending the kid and making uh, him some sort of hero in this whole process and painting Chris Paul as an angry athlete. Do you think that we're in for some of that today or am I being too dubious about the nature of mankind? Uh, depends on what else they've got going on today, I would guess, because I mean, they can, you can take any, any incident and just, you know, take an outrageous side on it, knowing nothing and turn it into the discourse for 24 hours. Yeah. I, I just, it's just crazy to see Chris Paul yelling at that kid. And I mean, you wonder what led to what really led to, I mean, was he, was this kid talking the entire time? And Chris Paul's mother was like, you be quiet, you know, try, you know, like telling a young kid to mind his manners. And he said something back. And I just don't know how this escalates. I mean, did, did, were they just walking back to their seats and got bumped and it was just a big misunderstanding? Yeah. I'm not taking anybody's side. I just know that, you know, I mean, and it sucks for Chris Paul because all he's trying to do is protect his family and get those people out of there that, he thinks had some sort of altercation with his family and you know who can blame him for that just that image and you know i mean is this kid gonna wake up to today and just there's jake from state farm 
standing on top of his bed, you know, ready to <laughs> tell him, ready to say, you know, this is this is why you need insurance. Now, hopefully it gets sorted out and whoever was really in the wrong, you know, was put in their place. It should be noted that the Mavericks were really quick in issuing a statement yeah. saying that it had no place in there. So they obviously felt uh, strongly enough about what went down that they needed to say that it was not indicative of what they want out at the old ballpark, which is understandable. Going to the court, Chris Paul, two straight bad games. It feels like we have seen this script before in the round against the Pelicans. The Mavericks suddenly look like they're capable of winning this series. You have Luka Doncic, who is just absolutely unbelievable. He only shot nine of 25 yesterday, but Great three-point shooting from Dorian Finney-Smith. The Mavs made 23s, and that's kind of their game plan. Luka is going to create, he's going to dish, and if they're knocking down shots, it's very hard to defend. So we have, once again, a huge game five for Chris Paul, playing for his legacy with this on top of it. Are you concerned about the Suns, or do you think this is kind of like the carbon copy of what went down against new Orleans and the cream is going to rise to the top once they get back in Phoenix and we're out of here in six as well. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm rooting for the lower seed as I usually do, because that kind of makes the, it makes for the more exciting uh, results and games. And, but I I'd also like to see Chris Paul finally win a championship. The Suns are full strength, it seems. So they should win this series. But, you know, the the Mavericks have Luka, who's the best player. And if they're hot, then they can win. I don't know. I I think the Suns should still win. I mean, it's we talked about this before. You know, it's just a talented league. So anybody can win any game. And if the Mavericks are going to be hot, then the Suns are going to have trouble. Yeah, with Luka, it was, you know, the comparisons to Larry Bird have been coming fast and furious. And in the first two games, it was kind of like, Luca was out there with Indiana State's team. They were so bad. Like, I can't remember a supporting cast that looked overmatched, like a lot of deer in the headlights and, and just looked like trash. Kind of the same thing has been happening in the Miami-Philadelphia series. Now, no Joel Embiid in the first two games obviously set the table for easy Miami victory. There was a lot of culture chatter. There was a lot of beating of chests down there in South Beach. Uh, when they weren't building fake water for a Formula One event. But Embiid came back and he played like he knew he was going to get snubbed for the MVP. He was dynamite in game three, even better in game four. Now the Sixers have leveled the series 2-2. And I have to say, Philadelphia at full strength to me seems like a better basketball team than the Miami Heat. I don't understand what the Heat are doing with their rotation. They got an enormous game from Jimmy Butler last night but Duncan Robinson cannot get on the court and it's super weird because in the first game of the playoffs he was lights out from three he was unbelievable in that run in the bubble in which they made the NBA finals Kyle Lowry looked old and slow and bad and I really wonder if the Heat have built a roster that has a ton of options but not enough reliable options because if you can't bank on Duncan Robinson, you just gave him a ton of money to come in and score points. They are in a real pickle here because Tyler Hero's defense is not where it needs to be. 
and you can't play hero and Robinson because then you have 40% of your defensive unit playing like a sieve and that's not going to get the job done against Tyrese Maxey or Joel Embiid. Yeah. Um, if Harden plays like that Harden, then the heat should lose, you know, we've always, for the last few years, it's been the main way of thinking is you need stars. You need a couple stars to win a title and the heat just have Jimmy Butler. Who's just, just a notch below like the super duper stars. Uh, he's obviously very good. You know, he had the 40 point game yesterday, but they just have too many of these role guys who, I mean, that it's kind of like the, uh, the Hawks back uh, like 10 years ago or so when the Horford Hawks, when they just had all these really good guys and they were a heck of a regular season team. And then they get to the playoffs and get against a real superstar and, that's when the trouble begins. Yeah, it's another series where I wouldn't be surprised if either side wins, but the Sixers with healthy Embiid, or healthy-ish, you know, as healthy as you can be with a broken face, they they should be able to win. It's just the Heat have just too many of those guys who should be, like, standing around while Embiid and Harden take shots and just wait for open threes. I'm allowed to say this because I rooted for them, but they kind of remind me of those Pistons teams in the early 2000s. They made six consecutive Eastern Conference Finals. They had one championship to show for it, and they got that because they went out and got Rasheed Wallace at the trade deadline. They realized they needed another dude uh, to make the ship run as efficiently as possible. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that that Miami, you're sitting there and – Harden has been a real question mark all year as he's kind of been his entire career. Last night was a real reminder that when he's good, you can't play any defense on him. Like he's capable of doing that. If he's doing the move where he dribbles through his legs three times and does the step back three with his ability to get fouled. I don't know how you get out on that anymore. And like we said, there are defensive issues, even though Miami has Bam Adebayo, who's as good as anybody on that side of the floor. It just doesn't trickle down to everybody else. In the other Western Conference series, the Golden State Warriors, I got to make a confession to you. I'm liking the Golden State Warriors. I've never liked them before. I didn't enjoy their rise to prominence. I never got on the Steph Curry or Clay Thompson train. Those championship teams, I always rooted against them, pulled for the other side. Part of that was LeBron. Part of that was just... It didn't resonate with me, but when I watch them play, I have like this strange newfound respect for everybody on the floor because they are championship tested. Even Draymond Green, who has been a zero on offense in this series and not played particularly well, is that influence that you need to win a championship. And I am just so impressed game in and game out at their championship response. I know they're not the reigning title holder, but the way they answer the bell every time they're asked reminds me of a team that's defending a crown. This Warriors team, this iteration, where do you put them compared to the previous ones? What's What was your relationship as they made the 2015 championship, as they brought Kevin Durant, and now in this retooled kind of Warriors 3.0 era? Yeah, I was kind of on the same side as you, uh, constantly rooting against them because of LeBron. There was always just like just watching them in the regular season or earlier in the playoffs, there's just such a beauty to like 
when Steph and Clay are hitting shots, um, especially with Steph. Well, I mean, yeah, with both those guys, when when they're on, it's just breathtaking as a basketball fan, I think. So now Clay's kind of, you know, he's coming off a bad injury, so he's not what he was. Uh, Jordan Poole is suddenly an incredible player. Uh, Draymond always is, except for his passing, there's not much uh, pretty about his game. So they're they're not they're not as good. They're not as fun as they were during the uh, championship years. But uh, Steph still being at this level, and you know they've they put stuff together, and they they could. I don't think they can get out of the West. And it sucks that Morant's hurt now. And what what's really disappointing is now that we've now we've brought the uh, the code into uh, the NBA. Steve, it's surprising that Steve Kerr was the first one that I've ever heard actually bring that up. And now one game later, someone else, uh, Morant, hurt his leg. And now they're saying that the Warriors also broke the code. As much as we uh, make fun of baseball, basketball has their own set of unwritten rules, apparently. And uh, it's just basically, basically it comes down to be cool. You know, don't touch people where you're not supposed to. Well, I don't know how realistic the code actually is when you're playing playoff basketball i didn't think that jordan Poole did anything dirty i, I was kind of shocked by the discussion yeah, weird. did anything wrong like i mean you're, you're trying to win basketball games he didn't intentionally go for the leg the thing is is you got a bunch of dudes out there jumping and running and doing all this fast twitch stuff they're gonna get hurt even if they're the best athletes in the world look at the playoffs you've seen one by one the stars go down and for Memphis, it's a real problem. I mean, it's great to have Ja, who I think is going to be the next Michael Jordan, if he's not almost there already in terms of career-wise what Jordan did in his third year. Memphis just is helpless without him. Like, they're not yeah. really a high playoff team. Everything runs through him. His I don't know what his usage rate is, and I don't get too into stats, but it has to be astronomical. And, and I just don't think that Dylan Brooks and Desmond Bain are going to yes. excel at creating their own offense based on how they both play. They're both more shooters. The best player in basketball still resides with the Milwaukee Bucks, even though he did not win an MVP. As the Bucks won a very tight game three against the Celtics by two point featuring a crazy sequence at the end. There's game four tonight. Boston obviously needs to win this one. I guess what I'm going to posit and where we can start the discussion on this one is the more I watch the playoffs all around, I think that these are the two best teams. I kind of think that this is the de facto championship and whoever emerges from it is the team that I think is going to win the NBA finals. And the intensity has been there. It's been really fun. These converging styles are really awesome to watch. And I think the same reason where we like the NBA, where there was a lot of diversity in the way that teams play and everybody operated a little bit different. We went away from that in the three-point era where it was drive and kick, three, 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 three. And I know that Boston's shooting an incredible amount of threes, but that's not Milwaukee's game plan. Milwaukee's game plan is Giannis getting the hoop. And then you have a player like Drew Holiday, who is a throwback in so many ways defensively, but also just kind of like this live wire on the offensive end. What has stood out to you in this series? They seem incredibly even matched. And I think it's been the most entertaining of the four. Yes. I, I think I agree that the 
championships runs through Milwaukee. But I mean, how close was the success to taking a lead? Um, like a second, half, not even a second. Um, Tatum and Brown are both awesome. So the Celtics are very good. Um, yeah, I, I still think Marcus Smart's going to eventually kill him. Um, but, you know, Giannis, healthy, uh, holiday healthy. They'll eventually get Middleton back, maybe. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think that the Bucks are still the still the favorites, and I, I think they're gonna get out of here, even if it does take seven games. All right, that's the whip around NBA coverage. We'll get out of there on that. I have to say, I've been enjoying the playoff series greatly because they ebb and flow and train and change dramatically, rendering any take you have the day after a game completely meaningless and stupid after the next one. I think it exposes us all uh, as people who don't know anything about anything. Uh, And I think that that's really good to see because anybody who's going to be out there telling you that they are omniscient, omniscient, clairvoyant, can see the future is lying to you. Actually, I did have one last thing and I wanted to ask you this. Skip Bayless got very passionate on his Skip Bayless show over the weekend talking about how he hasn't missed a day of cardio in 24 years. He went deep on the reason for that. And it's pretty, you know, it's pretty powerful. He enjoys sweating. (laughs) So it means a lot to him. Um, How many consecutive days have you done at least one hour of cardio? And what do you think the median is if you were just pull an average American walking on the street? Uh, For me, I, I think I'm the opposite of Skip. Um, I think I've gone 24 years without cardio, uh, ever since I was still a teenager. That's a, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but, um, yeah, I, what about rest days, Skip? I mean, every time I've been to a gym or a personal trainer or something, you know, I mean, they, they talk about rest days, the body needs to recover. And eventually I think that's going to hurt Skip's long longevity. I mean, I don't, I don't know if he's still going to be doing this when he's 120, you know, I think he gets to 110, 112 years old and, you know, we're going to start to see, see him fade. It's sad. I never thought about 90 year old Skip Bayless doing the same shtick (laughs) on TV, but now that I have, I at once want to see it. And at once, I think it'll be very depressing. Maybe those two things. (laughs) Maybe you need the sweet and the sour with Skip Bayless, who gets under my skin, but what a talent he is. What a weird guy. Uh, The podcast is clearly what he's doing instead of going to therapy. Uh, And you know what? I mean, maybe it's not the best for him, but it's great content. That's been the Kyle Coster Show. I'm Kyle Coster. Stephen Douglas has been joining me. Remember, baseball update tomorrow. Enjoy the games. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.